0: Uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, this morning. Uh, I want to uh, address the issue from uh, the first part of this chapter of John, chapter 8, uh, the idea of getting caught. Uh, some of you are familiar uh, with that sensation of getting caught. Remember that moment, uh, maybe guys, uh, for a moment, uh, when uh, you, you came in past your curfew when you were a teenager and, uh, and your dad was still waiting up for you. Some of you have met my dad. Uh, he's been here on a, on a couple of occasions. I've described my father to you if you haven't met him before. Uh, he's a relatively large individual. I am not a relatively large individual, so he feels even larger than he really is. And, and so when I was 16, 17 years old, I was only about uh, five foot four, five foot five, weighed about 90, 95 pounds, was a little bitty guy. And, um, and my dad, his, his voice uh, could just be this booming, authoritative voice that would just rattle uh, the, the windows of our house. And, and if I would come in past my curfew, dad was always up. I mean, dad never went to bed. I, I, I don't know that he ever went to bed. I don't know that he goes to bed today. I think he just waits up, waiting for me to do something wrong so he can call me. And, and, and I would come in late, and I'd come in the door. At, at, uh, on, uh, we lived on Camellia Road in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'd, I'd park my car out off the street, and I'd creep in, and I'd slide my key into the front door as quietly as I could, hoping that none of, none of the tumblers would make any noise. And I'd turn it as quietly as I could, and I'd slip in the door, and, and uh, invariably I'd hear him say, Phil! yes Dad you know and 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 it's that that arresting moment in your life where you get caught it is just it's horrible i mean you don't you don't like it. it just kind of upsets all all the emotions that you've got It just kind of sets you into just a really sour kind of position. I mean when you get caught, all of your emotions go all sideways and up and down well, this is one of those passages where Somebody gets caught. Now, uh, let me read it for you in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. It says, "'At dawn he went to the temple.'" This is talking about Jesus. "'He went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. "'Teacher,' they said to him." This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked him this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Uh, Let me pray. Father, this is a passage that uh, we likely need to hear the the power uh, uh, from your Spirit on today. Lord, we find ourselves in the middle of this passage. We find ourselves caught. Uh, Lord Jesus, help us to find the freedom that you have for us today. In Christ's name. Amen. Now, let me address uh, an, an academic issue at the very front end of this. Some of you have a, a copy of the Bible in your hand, uh, like mine, that there, there is kind of some kind of footnote or some kind of brackets or uh, some little statement inside uh, of the text of the Scripture that actually indicates to us that this particular section of the Gospel of John is not included, and in, in there, maybe there's some statement, not included in the earliest manuscripts, of scripture, and, uh, and there's a whole academic reason as to why that is stated. In the very earliest Greek manuscripts that we have in our possession that are in museums around the world uh, on the manuscripts of the Gospel of John, the, the oldest ones we have do not have this particular story. Within it. So the question is, well, is this a is this should this still be in our English translations today? Is this really a Bible story or not? Or did this get added in like in the the third century, the fifth century, the tenth century? Where did this get added in? Uh, Most scholars agree that this was a story that did get addended into uh, John's Gospel later on, but, the, but I, I just would say that the scholars that I trust the most and the research that I have done about this is I come to the conclusion that this is very much a Jesus story. Uh, this is a story that very likely happened in the life of Jesus, though it is not included in the earliest manuscripts. And, and so thus, as I was planning on, you know, walking through the Gospel of John passage by chapter, passage by passage, I had to make the decision, all right, what do I do when I get to John chapter 8? Am I going to just skip over this and just tell you, hey, all of you skip over it and not worry about it, or would I dig into it? And because I do think that it is a Jesus story, I think it is very, it's worthy of our attention this morning. So what happens in this story about Jesus, well, it tells us in in the, in the verse previous, in in verse one here of chapter eight, that Jesus had gone to the Mount of Olives, and then it says early in the morning he goes to the temple again. This is what Jesus does a lot. He goes to the temple, and when he goes to the temple, he teaches. Uh, This is what a rabbi does, and Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He's a guy who moves around through uh, this region where he lives teaching about the the in-breaking of the kingdom of God into the world as to what it is that he is doing, what it is that he is fulfilling. And, And so while he's there teaching, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees show up. Now the scribes are the guys that they would take the Hebrew Scriptures that we call the Old Testament and they would copy them and they would make more and more copies of the scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so they were incredibly familiar with what was in the law because they were constantly writing and rewriting it. They were as familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures as anybody else. And then you had the Pharisees. And the Pharisees you actually never see in the Old Testament. Uh, There is a gap of about 300 years between the closing of all of the Old Testament books that God gave the revelation to all the prophets of writing what we refer to as the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus. There's this 300 period, some historians call it the 300 years of silence. But during that time, a group of Jewish leaders rise up because Israel continuously fell into sin. And so this group of guys rose up in order to start calling the Hebrew people back to repentance and back to covenant faithfulness with God. Unfortunately, by the time we get to the the life of Jesus, uh, they are uh, not the nicest guys around. Uh, They have become the religious elite who know the Hebrew law very, very well, uh, but like to use it as a battering ram rather than actually something that is a guide and a compass and somewhat of a, a north star for everyone. And so they do, in this passage, what seemingly was relatively common in that, in that day, and that was they would find somebody who was sinning terribly, and instead of quietly confronting them and showing them a better way, they would drag them out in front of a crowd of people in order to ridicule and humiliate them about their sinfulness. And in this, and in this instance, uh, they were going to bring about the worst of all possible punishments even. So it says that these men, uh, because scribes and Pharisees were all men, that they brought a woman caught in adultery. Now, there is this interesting question that uh, other pastors have asked long before me, and that is, uh, you don't get caught in adultery all by yourself. Uh, Adultery is not a solo sin, all right? And so there was a dude involved here that somehow they just let him go. And so now what we see about these Pharisees and the scribes is that they're very choosy, and we find out why it is that they do this. There in verse 6, it says that they asked him this question. They confront Jesus with this woman who has been caught in her sin in order to trap Jesus because they want evidence against him so that they can accuse him. What they want to do is prove him to be a heretic religiously, and a political usurper uh, within the Roman Empire so that they can get Jesus executed. This is what they want. They want to get rid of Jesus. And so it's not that they really care about getting sin out of the city culturally, and it's not that they're really concerned about the the condition of the soul of this woman or the dude that apparently they let off without him getting confronted. All they want is to find a way to accuse Jesus so that they can tarnish his reputation and so that they can ultimately get him arrested and executed. So they drag out this woman in front of Jesus, and you see the the statement. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. Okay, so uh, they're mostly grown-ups in the room. So recognize what has happened. I mean, they have busted into somebody's house... While she's in the act of committing adultery, they have drugged her into, not just like out onto the sidewalk beside her house, but they they have taken her from wherever that home was, and if you know the geography a little bit about the temple, and they have taken her blocks and blocks and blocks away from all of the residences, all the way up onto the temple mount in front of probably what was a large crowd of people. And it says, and they put her in the center of everybody... And they say, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the, law of Mo- in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? It was interesting, Andrew, my son and I were talking about this uh, just last night. as uh, We were talking about this particular passage, and, and, uh, and, and he made the observation that all of us would make the observation of like stoning. This is like, like it's one thing to like, somebody's going to get executed, but then there's another thing that you're going to get pelted with rocks to death. I mean, this is a horrific, humiliating, torturous kind of way to die. Very early on, uh, what many historians say is when someone would be stoned to death is that they would be pushed down a hill and very large rocks all the way to boulders would be shoved off so that the person would be crushed relatively quickly. But it would seem in this instance that they had drugged this woman out into the middle of the kind of the the religious center, and they all had carried little stones that they had picked up uh, along the road with them. They had hand-sized rocks that they were going to literally torture this woman to death. They were okay with this woman dying a horrific, painful death if they could catch Jesus in a lie. I mean, they wanted one or the other. So it says, Jesus stoops down, and he starts to doodle in the sand, in the dirt. We don't know what it is that he doodled. Some people say that he started making a list of all the sins of the men that had made accusations against her. Other people said that he might have started writing out some of the Hebrew Scriptures that maybe they had, uh, that they had broken, some of the laws. We don't know what it is, but Jesus, you know, t- t- slow rolls the whole thing. And and he says to them after a few moments, it would seem, I'll tell you what, whoever among you guys doesn't have any sin, go ahead and throw the first rock. Square up. I mean, uh, did you see the the game yesterday between Vanderbilt and Florida? I thought those two coaches were going to square up. I thought they were just going to go right at each other. I mean, they were mad. And, And that's what these guys were. They were mad. They thought that they had something to prove. And so Jesus said, all right, big boys, square up. You think you got something to prove? You you think you're okay? If you don't have any sin, go ahead and pitch out the first rock at at this woman. Well, it would seem that they all uh, decided that that was probably not the wise thing to do. And so uh, starting with the oldest... The guys who had the most wisdom, the most insight, had the most life experience, they all began to walk away until it was just once again Jesus and the woman. And he tells her, well, doesn't look like there's anybody here to condemn you, and neither do I. So go on your way and don't sin any longer. Uh, here is what I think that the, the, the whole passage comes down to, Because I do think that the key idea here is that we get caught. You see, it is that the judgmental crowd is caught in their hypocrisy. I would like to propose that we stop naming this particular passage, the woman caught in adultery, and instead we call it the men caught in their hypocrisy. I think that's a much more accurate uh, description of this particular passage. And it teaches us that the judgmental crowd is always going to get caught in its hypocrisy. Jesus does not let you off the hook just because you think that there's somebody there who's got a much more worse, blatant, you know, obvious sin to everybody else around. Jesus catches this crowd in, the, in their own hypocrisy. But there's another person who gets caught here, and it's the woman. The humiliated woman is caught in God's grace. In this ancient time, as it is in our days, there are certain sins that carry greater stigmas. Now, that's just the nature of, of humanity. We all recognize, or we should, that theologically, doctrinally, all sin is offensive to God. It's all affront to God. It is all sickening and vile to God. It doesn't matter what your sin is. It's all terrible. You break one law, you're a lawbreaker. You commit one sin, you're a sinner. It, it, it is all worthy of condemnation. And in and, and this ancient time, a woman caught in adultery... Uh, was uh, not just morally devastating, it was socially devastating. If she was cast out by her family, it, it meant that she was going to have to live on the street. She was going to have to sell herself into some kind of slavery. She may have to sell herself into some kind of prostitution. Uh, she would have no one to take care of her. Her family would reject her. And, and so there are some among us that we fit into the first category. We are the hypocritical crowd that has been, that, that has been caught... You know, uh, we have been busy judging everybody else, and, and Jesus is going to catch us in our hypocrisy. And then there are others among us that we are the humiliated sinner, that our, our brokenness is on display to everybody, and, and God is very concerned with catching you with His grace today. No matter what, Jesus confronts our sin. This is what happens in this passage everybody's sin gets confronted. We uh, play off like we're gonna get away with it. Like, like we're, the, you know, we're, the, we're the young adult that pulled the wool over our parents' eyes. Like we're the employee that we're gonna be able to obscure what we did uh, from the accounting department. That, that somehow we're gonna be able to, to, to get by so that nobody else, it's like, it's not a speeding ticket if I don't get caught you know, coming across the Green Bridge at 65 miles an hour. You know, as long as there's not a Bradenton PD on one side or a Palmetto PD on the other side, then apparently I wasn't breaking the law. But Jesus confronts all of our sin. There's none of it that, that somewhere in the, in the economy of God's work that he does for Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sins. There's nowhere in there that Jesus is dying on the cross that there's one sin that you've committed that somehow blips across the radar of eternity that Jesus says, oh, I don't have to pay for that one. Oh, that one is kind of, uh, you know, that one's kind of okay, we'll let that one slide. Instead, every sin has to be confronted by Jesus. We see this in this passage, we know this for ourselves. And regardless of your background, Jesus confronts our sin. Whether you're religious or non-religious, Jesus confronts our sin. Whether you're good or bad, man or woman, uh, right side or wrong side of town, wherever it is that you're from, whether you're Baptist, Methodist, Atheistic, Catholic, Mormon, Jewish, agnostic, everything, Jesus confronts our sinfulness. It doesn't matter if you're a senior adult or a teenager or a millennial or you're middle-aged. Jesus confronts our sin... And it's for our good that he confronts our sin. What would have happened to this crowd of hypocrites if Jesus had not confronted their sin? They would have thought what they did was okay. And they would have done it again and again, and they would have humiliated more and more people, and they would have persisted in their own arrogance and their own pride to their great demise eternally. What would have happened if Jesus had not confronted the sin of the woman? She would have persisted on in her sin, it would have been fine, she would have found other people to hook up with, she would have, you know, continued on in this sinful lifestyle. But Jesus confronts our sin. So what is it that Jesus does with our sin? What does Jesus do with our sin? Well, first, I would say that He afflicts people who are comfortable in their sin. And there are some of us that are very comfortable in our sinfulness. Uh, We have found it to be easy to sin. Our sins of pride, our sins of racism, our sins of arrogance, our sins of lying to people, our sins of stealing from our bosses, uh, our our sin against people that we say that we love, that we're abusive toward. Uh, Jesus wants to afflict you when you get comfortable with your sin. He wants you to have misery there. And it's something that, quite honestly, you should pray in your own life, Jesus, make me miserable in my sin. Make it so that I don't enjoy this any longer, where it is bitter and it is sour to me. That's oftentimes why people persist in their sin. I mean, there is this reason why it's called temptation. It's tempting. It's enjoyable. It's fun. It is pleasurable to the flesh. And so you should pray that you would be afflicted with misery in the midst of your sinfulness. But then He comforts people who are afflicted by their sin. Jesus comes along the person who is miserable, who is absolutely sad and dour and lamenting and grieving their sin, and He comes along to comfort them with His grace and with His mercy. It is just part of the economy and the mathematics of how God deals. That with the judgmental, hypocritical crowd, he comes along and he absolutely devastates them so that he would unravel their souls in front of them. And with the woman who is humiliated and she's been drugged out in front of everybody and she knows that her life is an utter, total wreck and a mess, he comforts her with his grace. So what do we do with all of this, being caught by God, whether caught in our hypocrisy or caught up in His grace. Well, the application for you, if you're lost, is I want to encourage you to do the same thing that Jesus encouraged encouraged a woman. I want you to repent and believe. He says, he says, get up. Nobody is here that is going to condemn you. And when he says there's no one left to condemn you, there's only one other person in the conversation with her, and it's Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. He says there's no one here to condemn you. Go and sin no more. He is calling her to a life of repentance Now, I get it that that is a Bible word, it's a religious word, Uh, you know, I don't know that you use the word repent a whole lot on Tuesday afternoons when you're grocery shopping or whatever it is that you're doing in your daily routine, but I would submit to you that the call of God to repent is out of His kindness, it is not out of His anger, God does not call people to repent because he's mad at you. He calls you to repent because he loves you and he enjoys you and he has created you for fellowship and he wants you to leave those things that are devastating your life and the sin that is killing you and that is bringing eternal condemnation into your life. He wants you to repent and turn around and come toward him so that you can enjoy a covenant fellowship with him that by his grace that you can be saved. And so he calls you to repent and believe. And if you find yourself here today, it doesn't matter how religious you are, it doesn't matter how good of a church member you've been, it doesn't matter what your attendance record or your giving record or your service record is, with any kind of religious organization, nonprofit status, or anything like that, the question is, have you come before Jesus the Savior of the world, who is willing to stand uh, over uh, towering, it would seem, over a woman who is broken by her sinfulness, that all of the culture said, she should just die for this. She should just get killed, and not even like quick and painless, but like drawn out and torturous, and let's really humiliate her. And he says to her, there's nobody left to condemn you. You can just enjoy grace. And I would say that to you. No matter how you've been trying to pay for your sins, with your own good behavior, with your own kind of self-loathing, with, with everything that's going on in your life, there is no amount of religious practice that you can do. There's no amount of, of, of studies or service or anything that you can ever do to earn grace. That is the very nature of grace. It's given freely. And, and Jesus says to this woman, there's nobody here to condemn you, so I'm calling you to... Repentance. I'm calling you to follow me is what the call to repentance really is. And and you and I get the same gift. And so if you're you're sitting there thinking, well, what's everybody going to think? I mean, I've been a member here for a really long time. Or I've been attending here for a while. And, you know, are people going to, like, think that, well, I thought she already had it. I thought that he already had that locked down and nailed down. Let me just promise you, knowing our church like I know our church, we're going to celebrate with you that God has moved in your heart in this kind of way, Uh, that he has called you to this deep fellowship with him, that that you have recognized that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and and that he is the only way that we come to the Father in heaven. Uh, We will celebrate that with you. If you will choose to repent and believe, the application for those of us that have already entered into this relationship that are saved already is that I want you to know that your sins are no less horrible and offensive than those around you. We get caught up in the idea that, uh, that our sins are respectable sins, and there are no respectable sins. Uh, there, there's, there's nothing that you and I do that is somehow less horrible than the guy who is right down 14th Street selling heroin. Uh, there is nothing that is more respectable and sinful activity in my life uh, that is better than the one who is busy in human trafficking. Uh, there are no respectable sins. Uh, and, and yet, we put everything on a grade and on a curve and on a scale. And, and our sins, my sin, is no less horrible than anybody else's sin. The, the sins that I have that, uh, that I would say, well, I don't want to be around those people, which is just cute code word for prejudice and racism. Uh, the, the, the things that we say of, you know, well, I'm just so glad that I'm not like her, uh, which is, you know, arrogance and pride. Uh, well, I, I'm, you know, uh, we've moved past you know, having to really help those people any longer. They're just, they're on their own. That kind of apathy toward the plight of new, another human being, those are ugly things that can rev up in our lives. And, and my sin and your sin is no less horrible, no less offensive than anybody else's sin. Every sin that you and I commit is against the holiness and the sovereignty of God, and it is all vile and worthy of him vomiting out us out of his mouth. We think that just kind of throttling back a little bit and, and, and just not trying as hard certainly can't be as bad as a lot of the sins that we say, see play out in other people's lives. But let me just use this image, which is hard to stomach, uh, of vomiting. It is in the very last book of the Bible where Jesus is personally writing letters to seven different churches operating in the very first century. And he does not say to the murderess, you make me sick and I will vomit you out of my mouth. He doesn't say it to the adulteress, you make me sick and I will vomit you out of my mouth. He doesn't say it to the liar or the racist, you make me sick, I will vomit you out of my mouth. He says it to the person who is just lukewarm who's just grown a little apathetic to their faith, who who just doesn't quite care as much as they did at one point, and they're just kind of sleepy in the light of Christ and in the ministry of the church. It is to this person, it is to that church, that Jesus says, your sin is so nauseous to me that I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is a pretty radical image that the God of the universe uses against us. And if that sin that we think is so tepid and is so tame and is so easy to manage of just being apathetic a little bit about the gospel and the mission and the whole thing, if, if that sin is so horrific in, the, in, in Jesus having to deal with it, then, then we should not ever think that somehow my sin is not as bad as all the rest of the sins I mean, just mere apathy makes Jesus sick to his stomach, and yet we traipse through our Christian life so very easily as if we can just manage all of these temptations, but I want to remind you that sin is not a pet to tame. It is a beast to slay. Sin is not something that you keep on a leash, and you're going to keep it under wraps, and you're going to keep it easily managed, it's going to stay in a little cage. Sin is not a pet to tame, it is a beast to slay, and Christ has done the slaying, and you must follow him in it. Jesus Christ has been willing to die on behalf of these sins that we treat like little pets that we can enjoy. But instead, we need to recognize that these are monsters in our lives that are seeking to devour your very soul. And so this morning, I want to call you to a moment of repentance. I want to call you to lay down your life once again in front of Christ, I want to call to some of you who have been really great baptists and really great church members and really dedicated to all sorts of religious activities to recognize there's never been a moment in your life where you actually laid down your heart before Christ and said to Jesus, here's my life, you can take it and have all of it. I will trust you and you alone for my salvation. You've still been working for your salvation and it's time for you to recognize you're the humiliated sinner that Jesus says to you, I no longer condemn you. Come and believe in me, and I will give you eternal life. And then there are many of us that are believers, that we have secret hidden sins in our life, or you have blatant sins that everybody around you knows about, but nobody will confront you about because you're such a jerk over it. And it's time for you to come before Christ and lay your life at the altar again and say, God, here is my heart, as broken and as busted as it is. You can shape me and mold me and make me to look like Jesus. I beg of you that you would do that. I come before you with repentance. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat, to come to an altar and to kneel before Christ, maybe you would do it with tears of sorrow and lament and grief and weeping because you have wasted so much of your life with sin, and some of you will rush here with joy and exaltation because you finally feel free and liberated from the junk that you have allowed to keep you captive. It is time for you not to keep that sin as a pet, but allow Christ to slay it in your life. And it might be anger, it might be that you don't like those people, that you avoid this situation because you're gonna have to deal with that person and you're dealing with bitterness in your life or it could be lust or it could be greed or it could be any number of things that are in your life. But Christ is the only place you're gonna get freedom from those things. And so I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and let's pray for a few moments and let's set the stage And then I'm going to pray, and you're going to pray along with me, and we're going to ask the Father that He would give us freedom and liberty from sinfulness today.